0: Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi, I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series, now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. This is Olivia, she's 18 years old, she's just presented to your practice with her friend Amelia, who's concerned that she hardly eats anything. She's lost eight kilograms in the last two months. She's running two hours a day. That's healthy, isn't it, to run two hours a day? Uh, her parents have just separated. My first question to you is, which of these two young women is Olivia? Yeah, the one on your left. Um, and I just highlight that because um, most people with eating disorders, including those who are, can be a high medical risk, are often normal BMIs, but they can have lost a lot of weight. And as we'll hear about Olivia, she's not really very well, even though she looks normal. For a start, her periods stopped eight months ago. Um, being a GP who knows a bit about this, you, you, know, you asked about that, so that's not normal, is it? She feels, after her run, she feels lightheaded and dizzy. Uh, you know that because you've taken some cardiovascular symptoms, because the most common cause of death with anorexia is, is cardiac arrest. And you also took a dietary history. Well done, because it's really important uh, to, in the last 24 hours, to ask them on what they actually ate um, because often people say, I'm eating well, I'm eating healthy, but it's good to get to the specifics. Now, Olivia uh, has no breakfast, but a lot of people don't have breakfast, so that's not that unusual. For lunch, she says she has a really healthy lunch of a small lettuce, carrot and tomato salad. I don't think that's healthy. Um, Dinner, she eats whatever her mother cooks because her mother comes home and then she vomits that afterwards. That's clearly not very healthy. Uh, she wants to lose more weight to get more healthy, because like a lot of people in our society, she equates weight with health, and the lower the weight, the better your health. I would argue that causes a lot of um, eating disorders. So which eating disorder does Olivia have? Does she have anorexia nervosa, um, which is a condition where a person doesn't eat enough, they have low weight, and they have um, some of the complications of of not eating enough? Um, By the way, in um, infertility infertility clinics, the most common cause of infertility clinic, uh, infertility is people stop menstruating because they're not eating enough, but they look a healthy weight, but they're not actually healthy for their their needs. Or does she have the binge eating, um, purging subtype of anorexia, which is even more dangerous because every time you purge, you can drop your potassium and uh, have a cardiac arrhythmia. Does she have bulimia nervosa, which is people with normal weight or higher than normal weight who repeatedly on a cycle of binging and purging, although often those people do restrict as well. Or does she have binge eating disorder where she just binges? Another eating disorder that's only been recently uh, in the the classification system but has been around for a long time is ARFID, avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder. This is quite a common condition, often arises in childhood, and it's where a person is not afraid of Putting on weight, but they have an aversion to a big range of foods. It's common with people on the autistic spectrum, who avoid a lot of foods because of the texture. But it can also be people who have had problems with choking, and they get very anxious about foods, or even vomiting—a metaphobia. Um, you know, I've seen a patient who could only eat potatoes, and 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 went blind because um, you know, they had a severe vitamin deficiency from arfid, and all the eating disorder service said, "Oh, we don't treat that." Um, anorexia nervosa does have high mortality rates. According to the largest meta-analysis looking into this by Achilles, 10 to 20% um, die from their illness, either from starvation, which is the majority, or, or the effects of purging, cardiac a- arrests, or suicide. People with anorexia are 32, uh, 32 times more likely to commit suicide than somebody who doesn't have anorexia because anorexia is a very tormenting condition. From morning to night, your brain is obsessing about not good enough, I need to eat more. You know, I've just been to the Lifeline book fest actually and I was looking at a, a memoir by Porter de Rossi and she, t- she wakes up to this voice in her head saying, what, what did you eat yesterday? What are you gonna do to burn it off? It's just a, it's like our own, those cultural signals we're all getting but it's on steroids like magnified by 10 times. With treatments, so I think that rate is coming down to more like five or six percent, but still that's, that's a high death rate for um, if your daughter gets anorexia and she's got one in 10 or one in 20 chance of being dead in 10 years. That's obviously something we want to get onto very early. In 2012, Deloitte Access Economics were commissioned to do a study looking at the prevalence of eating disorders in Australia, and they found that almost a million people have, currently have an eating disorder. So one in 20 in this room, probably more example. Um, 450,000 of those million were binge eating disorder which has um, a lot of um, longer-term health complications such as metabolic syndrome and the cost to the economy was huge. People with anorexia often need to be in hospital for a long time and as you can see there were a lot of deaths and a lot of men dying from anorexia as well. So um, we've got a Pretty high average IQ in this room, I would say. We're all medical professionals. Uh, We've all had a lot of training, but do we know what the biggest risk factor is for this deadly common condition that's increasing in prevalence in our community? Um, You know, if we think of other conditions like uh, melanoma, we know the cause of that, cirrhosis of the liver, we know the, the highest risk factors for that, heart disease. Uh, but I often find uh, health practitioners aren't very well trained in understanding, even though we have the literature to understand this. This risk factor I'm thinking of, if you have two daughters or sons and one has this risk factor, uh, they are 18 times more likely to catch the deadly illness known as anorexia nervosa, and it's got a 10% death rate. Don't prescribe diets, despite what the other presenters say. OK? I mean, what by diet I mean limiting your calori- caloric intake to a point that you- is not sustainable for the rest of your life, so less than 1,000 calories. And I'll explain why and um, what dieting does to the brain and why in, unfortunately, some susceptible individuals it causes this illness. This is not well known. We are actually encouraging dieting. Back in the 30s, GPs often prescribed smoking, you know, to help patients with their nerves. My mother was prescribed smoking in the, in the 70s, actually. And so now we're prescribing dieting Now, if someone's obese, this is a whole other talk, and you put them on a rigid diet and they lose weight, in two years, what's the likelihood that they're they're back at their old weight? 90, 95, 90% according to the literature I've seen. So if you do prescribe diets, warn them that it's got a 90% failure rate, and if it does fail, it's not their fault. Okay, because um, dieting is... uh, So yeah, I think I've got that little message across. Um, unfortunately, I see a lot of healthy young people come in and go on a diet and get really sick, and some of them I've been to their funerals. It's pretty serious. Now, genetics, whoever said that is um, absolutely correct. It is important as well, it's the second biggest risk factor. What do you think it is that's inherited? Um, you know, some, there's a 50 to 80% concordance in monozygotic twins for anorexia. What do you think it is that's inherited? What is in the gene? And Nature published a study recently looking at the Um, the gene um, profiles of people with anorexia. It's actually a certain type of personality, what what I as a psychiatrist would call an obsessional personality style. So this is highly genetically inherited. This is a personality style where you're perfectionistic, um, obsessional, you're very organised, you're able to delay gratification, you're very driven. Now that personality style, which is genetically inherited, also increases the risk of some other conditions. Can you guess what they might be? OCD, absolutely, and so the, the nature study showed that OCD and uh, anorexia were correlated. And there's similar illnesses and there's a lot of obsessive, ritualistic behavior. The person deep down knows is crazy in a way, but they can't stop doing it. But that obsessional, uh, able to defer gratification, driven, per, perfection, per, perfectionistic personality also increases the risk of something, another condition, and that condition is becoming a doctor. Now, some of you might not have that personality. You're probably not going to be very good doctors, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm only kidding, it's all right. Um, but, you know, we're encouraged, aren't we, to check, double-check, triple-check, um, to, you know, if, just do 14-year study and you can be a GP, you know, <laughs> you know defer gratification. And so um, a lot of my patients are doctors and medical students and so and engineers. So if you have that personality, which we like in our society, um, you're more likely to become a doctor or do a PhD or become an engineer um, or develop anorexia. There is, a, And most people I see with anorexia have not had a history of trauma. They've got a normal, looks normal because it's similar to my personality, but it's not actually that normal, you know, obsessional personality, and they, they just perform the culture very well. They exercise, they diet. Um, and we'll explain why dieting causes that in a minute. But another pathway to eating disorders is if you have early attachment problems, trauma, sexual abuse that's been mentioned, or a chaotic early life, because the way we develop the ability to self-soothe is from having a, an available parent in our first five years of life. That's the most critical. And if we don't have that, we, get a, we grow up with a lot of anxiety and distress and negative affect, and we have to find a way to deal with that. Some people suicide but um, other ways of dealing with it are drinking, drugging, cutting, but also calorie counting, fasting, compulsive exercise, binging, purging, all help to um, relieve anxiety. So I see eating disorders, not really as eating disorders, but as solutions to emotions in many cases. Obesity increases the risk of anorexia. Why is that? Cause you're more likely to go on a diet. And if, in fact, Even before your GP gets to you, you'll be bullied in the schoolyard and be be told that you're not only... They won't say, you're so unhealthy. They'll say, you're lazy, you're greedy, you know, you're fat. So, fatism is probably the last allowable um, prejudice allowed in our society. And we know bullying and teasing definitely increases the risk of eating disorders and many other mental health conditions. We've mentioned the culture and the media. Um, I'm old enough to remember the... when you know, the 21st century's greatest invention, the forward-facing camera, when it came in. Didn't that change our life in a great way? Well, for young people, you know, that's caused an escalation of eating disorders when they're seeing a lot of images of themselves, posting them on the internet from a very young age and having those images compared to um, other people's images and ideal images. So there was a time where we would just see thin people on TV, you know, at night maybe, um, but now we're seeing thin people or young people are all day. Think of the number of, image, number of images young people are exposed to. In the eating disorder service where I work, which is a statewide eating disorder service, for the last 10 years, we've had a 20% increase in referrals every year. Until COVID arrived, then it's been a 100% increase, um, which did plateau, but we've had 100% and we didn't anticipate that, but COVID, the increased anxiety it causes, the um, food shortages, a whole lot of other reasons. It's been well described around the world. Stress a lot of people, when they have stress or a relationship breakup, they decide they're going to get healthy, which sometimes means um, not eating enough and exercising too much. You can see my message is very countercultural, because <laughs> I see the victims of the, the culture. Now the main reason that dieting causes anorexia is because of a syndrome called the starvation syndrome. It's a brain syndrome, well described in the 1950s, but unfortunately lacking from the syllabus of most medical students. And I'm gonna spend a little bit of time going through in detail what happens when you starve a human being, both physically and mentally, because that will help you to understand how your patients catch eating disorders and how you can help them to recover. And all my patients get get a copy of this uh, information about this study. So this uh, gentleman on the, on the front cover of Time magazine in the 1950s, his name was Ansel Keys. He was a physiologist, and he published a study called The Biology of Human Starvation, which was about two telephone books thick. Anyone remember what a telephone book is? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, my generation. Um, so they, he and his team observed very carefully a group of 36 men who they um, starved. They starved to the point of uh, losing... of their body weight for the first three months, observe them for six months, and then re-nourish them for three months. Now, these 36 men were actually conscientious objectors to um, conscription to military service in the 1950s in the USA. And in those days, if you were a conscientious objector, you went to prison. But there was a third option. You could volunteer for a medical experiment. (laughs) And that's what uh, these 36... You know, I admire these men. They were conscientious objectors to military service. They've had some good qualities. And most people with anorexia you'll see do have good qualities, they're very altruistic. They're like doctors, okay? Um, So what happened to these 36 men? They were all first screened to make sure they are totally physically and mentally healthy. They were, anyone who had mental illness was excluded. Anyone who had physical illness was excluded. They had a BMI BMI ranging from 20 to 25, the healthy range. Okay, I put inverted commas because BMI is not a good way to judge health. They lost. They were given rations to lose 25% of their body weight, which brought them down to a BMI range of about 15 to 19. Note that some of them had a BMI of 19. Um, but you'll hear that they went totally crazy on that BMI, even though um, that is seen as a healthy weight today. So what happened physically to these men? First of all, their blood pressure's all dropped, their heart rate's dropped, their temperature's dropped, all to be expected. You know, the body's very good at... Um, conserving energy when there's not enough fuel around. They, um, their intracellular levels of phosphate, so their ATP dropped, their um, potassium dropped, their glycogen stores dropped. We're not taught a lot about the physiology of starvation, um, but I see it every day, unfortunately. But what's really interesting is that 100% of the men went totally crazy. And as a psychiatrist, I know a lot of technical terms like crazy. Um, But when I say this to my patients, when did you go crazy after this diet? They go, yeah, I can remember when it happened. And they they understand what that means. So how did they go crazy? What happened was 100% of these men started to think about food all the time. They started to obsess about it. They started to fantasize about it. And when their rations were arrived, they developed what I call the three R's. Rituals, rules, and rigidity. They would often want to eat their food in complete silence over two hours without anyone interrupting. Them. They'd rearrange the food on the plate in various fetishistic ways before they started consuming it. Sometimes they'd hoard their food for later, but later never came. Hoarding is a very common starvation behaviour in animals and humans. Uh, sometimes they wolfed their food down and purged it back up. Uh, but they also started um, sharing recipes with each other, which was unusual for American men in the 1950s. Um, they also, their thinking changed from, and it went from maybe easy going, go with the flow sort of thinking, to lots of um, rules and rigidity. I oh, know, it's gotta be done this way, I can't change, I'm not able to cope with sur- surprises. Anyone who's treated anyone with anorexia will recognize these personality traits, but a lot of them are state, uh, state-based, not trait-based, and they're starvation-based. Uh, they also um, they develop what we call proofreader thinking, where they've really got a, um, almost a superhuman ability to to detect detail and and when things are wrong. So and especially they could tell you the doctor when you got something wrong. <laughs> They're very critical. Okay, um, and those with a below, BMI of below 17, most of them became depressed, and we know depression is a biological response to starvation, as is an insomnia. Um, Three were, remember these men were totally normal mentally before the study was done. Three were admitted to the local psychiatric unit with uh, suicidal ideation, and one chopped three of his fingers off in a self-harm attempt. These men were very disturbed uh, as a result of the, the um, biological effects of human starvation. When they were renourished, nourished all these symptoms of rigidity and craziness and obsessionality and perfectionism disappeared, and they all returned physically and mentally. To their pre-morbid state of normality, uh, although three did change their occupation to chef. So, if you know some poor individual comes into your office with anorexia, they don't have a personality disorder. They're not morally weak. They've they're a victim of our culture, okay? And they've developed um, a predictable effect of that. When smoking was fashionable and we were prescribing smoking as doctors, we had an epidemic of. I mean, we just did it. We were part of the wider culture. We had an epidemic of lung cancer. We now have an epidemic of eating disorders, sadly. Um, So, eating disorders can seem like a complex topic, mainly because we're not trained in it, I think, but I like to keep it simple. And the simple three steps um, that I think of whenever I see anyone with anorexia or another eating disorder is, first of all, stop them dying, that would be good. Secondly, re-nourish their brain so they can benefit from the wonderful psychotherapies we have. Okay, and thirdly, um, refer them to evidence-based psychotherapy. When I started in this field 20 years ago, there were no evidence-based treatments for adults with anorexia. Now there are three. Um, it, CBTE, Cognitive Behaviour Therapy, a special type, CBT-enhanced, SSCM, which stands for Specialist supportive Clinical Management, and MANTRA maudsley anorexia nervosa treatment for adults adults these do all require training we don't have time in this talk to go into the details of those but get your patient into those if they're less than 18 the most effective treatment by far is a certain type of family treatment called fbt and two years ago the federal government um, with a lot of lobbying uh, decided to Approve item numbers for a psychologist to see somebody for 20 to 40 sessions to deliver an evidence-based dose of treatment Which I'm very happy about and that's made a huge difference to mortality rates in a good way So your patient who is at risk of dying will feel well And they'll tell you you're overreacting because fasting makes you feel very euphoric and so it's important to have facts um, clear objective measures of when a person is at risk and for me it's like they're um ice skating on a sunny day, and th- it's a beautiful day, but you know, that's, that ice is getting thinner and thinner. And the College of Psychiatrists is, um, in conjunction with our physician colleagues internationally has developed uh, criteria for admission to hospital. Now, like any guidelines, there'll be exceptions to these on both sides, but these are really helpful. First, what are the cardiac um, indicators for high risk? Postural tachycardia. Young people, when their heart doesn't have an a- a- ATP in it, they don't tend to get postural hypotension. Older people get that. They're more likely to get a postural, hype, uh, postural tachycardia. And if you have a patient who um, says, look, I mean, bradycardia is another risk factor if their heart rate's less than 50 if they're an adolescent or less than 40, thank you, um, for an adult. If they say, I'm an athlete, I run three hours a day, I eat three salads a day, that's why my heart rate's 36. I would say, well, there's two ways to tell the difference between an athlete and someone who's got severe starvation. One is an athlete eats twice as much as me. Do you eat twice as much as me? I'll tell them what I eat, They go, mmm. The second thing is uh, an athlete who's got really good heart condition, their heart rate will be 36 when they walk around your room and you check it again. Someone with anorexia with severe starvation, it'll jump up to 80 or 90. So it can be a useful indicator. So postural, um, so low heart rate, low blood pressure, high heart rate, postural changes, both in blood pressure or heart rate, or the things that can, you can die from very quickly, low potassium, low phosphate, low magnesium, and low glucose, because the heart desperately needs those things. People also get neutropenia with anorexia nervosa, uh, with starvation and a prolonged QT interval, very common on ECG with starvation. And you, often your patients will be health, working in the health area and you can show them these results and they go, oh my God, I thought I was healthy. Um, and BMI I've put last because it's the least important, but if someone's BMI is less than 14, they definitely need to be in hospital. Um, I'm a very good drawer, so often uh, use my artistic skills to draw a picture for the patient. I'm not really that good, as you can see. But, yeah, sometimes this can help when the patient says, look, I'm, I'm normal weight, I feel healthy, um, I don't mind that my periods have stopped. Um, I go through them and say, as a doctor, these are the things I'm looking at every time I see you. I'm looking at your cardiac function, and I show them what the heart's shaped like, give them a little anatomy lesson, um, and talk about you know postural changes in heart rate and blood pressure, potassium, phosphate, magnesium, glucose. Uh, looking at their input, we're a little bit running out of time, so you've got that... That, that you can use in your practice, hopefully. But the most important investigation whenever, t- whenever you see someone with an eating disorder is B-M-T-L-A-T-D-S. What does that stand for? Breakfast, morning tea, lunch, afternoon tea, dinner and supper, because that's what they're gonna need to have to get better and they're often missing those things. So nutrition is really is medicine when we're trying to repair the heart and the brain in this condition and the ovaries. That's what bone marrow looks like on the left when someone's starved. It's an acellular jelly like mass. I show them these pictures. And when it's renourished, they get um, an abundance of neutrophils back. That slide is just to remind us that if someone is very starved and their capacity is impaired and they're going to die, you can use the Mental Health Act. And you should. Okay, finally. Um, Just four dot points really about what you can do as a GP um, for somebody with an eating disorder. Firstly, weekly medical monitoring so that we can tell what their risk is. And I suggest you do that until they're eating adequately again and they've stopped purging or crazily exercising. We've mentioned the postural heart rate and blood pressure. Educate them as you're doing that. Their daily intake, B-M-T-L-A-T-D-S, remember? Uh, Their weight, maybe a blind weight because they can be very triggered by seeing the number on the scale. But just so you have a rough idea don't get too obsessed with weight um elfts mainly so you can look at the phosphate and the potassium and what it is in the heart cells check the magnesium as well and the neutrophils and do an ecg put them on thiamine as you're refeeding them because you don't want to cause vernically and vernic- encephalopathy for someone who's very starved and i would say prescribe nutrition we've talked a lot about nutrition as the treatment unfortunately there's not many medications that work for anorexia nervosa but I've seen a thousand people's brains re-nourished and be returned to normal. It's a wonderful thing to see. It's the last thing in the world they wanna do. So you gotta give them lots of reasons to do it. So I say, look, why don't, your heart's really a bit dodgy, your bone marrow is starting to suffer. You're gonna get osteoporosis. What if we put you on two sustage in a day at 10 o'clock and three o'clock in addition to what you're eating? It's easier for them to drink the drinks than to eat a big, and they often eat big salads that have no food, no energy in them anyway. Okay. Um, or br- even breakers can be useful um and refer for evidence-based treatment to your um, local psychologist or dietitian. well to a psychologist mainly is the most important thing and often these patients are difficult to treat because they're reluctant they've got addicted to their starvation they're in they have in the habit um they don't want you to pull it away from them so these strategies can help if they're a little bit ambivalent one is don't blame them you know they didn't they just Decide to go on a diet, they didn't decide to go absolutely crazy. Just educate them and nurse them back to um, their brain working again. And say, you know, it's the anorexia, it's crazy, all it cares about is numbers. Whereas you want to get back together with your friends and stop arguing with your mother, don't you? Yeah, good. That's your healthy side, I'm going to work with that part of you. Look at their, um, the pros and cons of dieting behaviour. Educate, 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 as I've been doing today, I give them the same lecture. Uh, Enlist the family, because they'll be worried, senseless, and and involve them. And let them know when there's a red line, medically, where you'll have to admit them to hospital. Ideally get an amber before you go red, so that you can motivate them to have that extra nutrition so they don't have to go to hospital. But a lot of people who've recovered say, I always assumed the doctor would step in when it got really serious. So I kept starving myself. And here's just some useful services. And I'd also commend the national eating disorder collaboration, uh, e-learning for GPs. That's the top dot point there. And I'm hearing really great feedback from GPs that they're finding a really useful um, training. It's self-paced, but you can dip in and out of it. And there's a few um, private eating disorder services there as well. Thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi And on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.